1 John chapter 2, we will begin reading in verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we as we look at your word this morning, as we study what the Apostle John wrote here to the church, how your spirit superintended that not only for their good but for our own, as we hear from you, we pray that your spirit would be at work giving us understanding. Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts expelling from our hearts love for the world or the things of the world and giving us a new and greater love for your Son. Father, mindful even as we look at this passage that we cannot do what John is commanding here and we pray that you would powerfully be at work in us to do it in us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe I should start out this way just by making a general statement that, that you, you may or may not be aware of. You were created to love. God is love, and therefore he created people to love. We're his image bearers. We are like him. Now, that's not the only characteristic that's true of God, but, but with bearing on the text today, what I want to drive at is this idea that, that God is love. And that he's created us as his image bearers to reflect that love. To love as he loves. Therefore our hearts, your hearts, have desires. And those desires, those affections, those things of, that you set your love on, they, they, those desires have to have something to attach themselves to. There needs to be an object for your affections. There needs to be something that your heart loves. Your heart search around for something upon which to lay their affections. We set our affections, by the way, on all manner of things, don't we? Set our affections on a spouse. We set our affections on children, on romance, just the generic idea of it. On money, fame, power, possessions, happiness, comfort, pleasure. We set our affections on all manner of things. We were created to set our affections on God. But we have traded him out for all manner of idols. 
we have ceased setting our affections on him and began setting them elsewhere. And you can see this impulse really well in those people our culture likes to call addicts. You know, people who are addicted to things. And it's, it's always um, a strange thing to me that we talk about addicts that way because, frankly, we're all addicted to something. Just some addictions are more societally acceptable than others. But you can show an addict, since you all know them, we can take one for example, you can show an addict that they should remove a particular object of affection from their life, but they will inevitably just place their affection on another object. Now they move their affections from alcohol or drugs or pornography to family or wealth or success. But the fact is that their hearts must set their affections somewhere. And here's the thing about the human heart. I can tell you why a particular object of your affection is destroying you. I can point you to it. I can draw you a picture of it. I can take videotape of your life showing you the object of your affection wrecking your life. And you can see that. And you can know it's true, but you still won't give it up. Your heart must have its affection set somewhere. So until your heart has a new object to replace the old one, you'll cling to that. You won't let it go. It doesn't matter what it's doing, you will not let it go until that old affection is replaced by a new one. Rich men, you know, don't become politicians because they repented of the love of money. You know that. When you see a rich man become a politician, you don't think to yourself immediately when you see that, well, he's clearly repented of the love of money. What do you think? Well, he now is in love with power. His affections have changed. That's all that you think. Isn't that right? It's what you generally know. Alcoholics often become sober not because they repented of alcoholism, but because their affections were set somewhere else, like health or family or comforts, which alcohol robs them of. At times, we give up an object of affection simply because we have exhausted its allure and its usefulness. We've become bored of it. And our hearts go searching for another But the fact is, our hearts are always searching for an object of affection. There is always some object of affection who takes up residence, if you will, in our heart. We may move the resident of alcohol out, but we're going to move in another resident, maybe family. There's always a resident in our heart. The heart will never rest empty. You understand? The heart can never rest empty because God made the heart to set its affections or its love on something. So there must be a resident upon which our affections are set. And here's the thing. Even when we're shown that our affections are vanity, which this always happens when you go to a funeral, right? You go to a funeral. You sit there at the funeral You see this person you know and loved who's died and you recognize that all the things that you have been spending your time on, worrying about, thinking about, if you will, setting your affections upon, you recognize they're all vanity. 
You recognize it. You have this sobering moment. That's why Solomon can say in Ecclesiastes that it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Because in the house of mourning, when you go there, you have a reality check. You suddenly realize what really matters and what's really important. And you're there and you say, this is all vanity. It's all chasing after the wind. But then, while you're sitting there thinking that, it isn't but a moment before you get up, walk out, and forget. And your heart clings right back to all those objects of affection that you realized in that moment were vanity. Because they have to be replaced with something. We cannot get rid of certain objects of our affections until we find a greater object of our affections. But even then, the next resident who moves in still may be the wrong one. Eventually, we do become like Solomon because we get exhausted of all the worldly objects of affection and we finally declare that all is vanity, a chasing after the wind. But unfortunately, we don't often turn to the Lord in that moment. We turn in ever increasingly on ourselves. We realize there's nowhere to set our affections which will satisfy us, and so we commit suicide. And from a Christian perspective, moving your affections from a socially rejected idol like alcoholism or pornography to a socially accepted idol like your spouse or children may be more respectable, but it is no less idolatrous. It is no less vanity. Whether your heart is set on a bottle or a drug or an image of a woman that you shouldn't be looking at, or it's set on your spouse or your children or your wealth, Wherever your heart's at, it's all equally vain. A chasing after the wind. Life is a vapor. It will all go away. It's all idolatry. So then what is a worthy object of affection? What is an enduring object of affection? What is an inexhaustible object of affection upon which we can set our hearts? And to answer this question, I want to look at three points from 1 John 2. In other words, we're going to walk through this passage and look at three points from 1 John 2 to answer that question. And then I'm going to ask you to really answer the question after those three points, how do we cultivate the one worthy affection we can have? How do we cultivate that? So let's look at how John first commands a new affection. He gives us a command for a new affection. Then how he commends that new affection to us. And third, how he gives that new affection to us. Okay, so let's look at a new affection commanded. Look at verse 15. Perhaps the most impossible command you will ever receive in your life. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, now I want you to stop and consider that. You hear the command, do not love the world or the things in the world. I want you to understand John's perspective on the world. For God so loved the world. Now the question is, does John think that the world is inherently bad? No, John is not a Gnostic. He doesn't think that God's creation is inherently evil. So when he says, do not love the world or the things in the world, he doesn't just mean, do not love sinful things. Do not love fallen things. He means, do not love even good things. Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
What's interesting about that is God created the world. God loves the world. God commands you to love people in the world. So what is it? I'm commanded to love my wife. I'm commanded to love my children. I'm commanded to love my neighbor. I'm commanded to love my enemy. I'm commanded not to love any of them. Which is it, John? Am I supposed to love them or not love them? Yes. What does he mean? What's he saying? He's saying there's not to be any rival to God in your affections. There is to be no rival. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Paul spoke about this um, briefly when he talks about Demas. If you remember reading through Paul's letters at any point in your life, as you're reading through, you hear about this co-worker in the gospel named Demas. He's one of Paul's friends. He's one of Paul's co-ministers, co-laborers in the gospel. And Paul's going along with Demas, and at one point, at the end of Paul's life, as he's about to die, he, re- he sort of speaks of Demas briefly in one sentence in which he says, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted us. John is warning against the love of this present world and the things in this present world. Look at Luke chapter 14. Keep your hands there in 1 John 2 and look at Luke chapter 14 because you're going to see Jesus say a very similar thing. Luke chapter 14. And if you will, look at verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. This is great crowds accompanying Jesus. In fact, this is the high point of Jesus' ministry. Here's the point at which the crowds were cresting. Here he is drawing more people than ever. Here's the time for Jesus to tell them how incredibly cuddly God is and how amazing it is to be a Christian and how it'll make your life happy and much better, right? That isn't what Jesus does, though. Great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said to them, listen, verse 26, if anyone comes to me, And does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. See, that's not a word of permission. That's a word of ability. If you do not hate your own father and mother and spouse, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even your own life, you cannot, you are incapable of being my disciple. That, that sounds a lot different than come to me and have your best life now. Doesn't it? Remarkably different than come to me and become a better you. Come to me. If you want to come to me, hate everyone you know. Or you can't be my disciple. What does he mean there? Because in other places, Jesus commands you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul commands you to love your spouse. You're commanded to love your enemy by Jesus. You're command- so, so what does he mean, hate them? Does Jesus tell us that we should Love the people around us or hate the people around us? Yes. What's Jesus talking about? The same thing John's talking about. Your affections 
are to be set supremely upon God. You're to lose everything for him. He is not saying, listen, I want you to hear this. He is not saying you need to be open to not loving the world. It would be good if you were open to that idea. You should be willing to hate your father and mother. It would be nice if you were willing. That's like telling your spouse, I, I'm open to not having a, uh, you know, a, an adulterous woman in my life. I, I'm willing to not have that. Your spouse is not going to look at you and go, man, your affection for me is so deep. He's saying, do not love the world, hate your father and mother, hate your wife and children, hate even your own life. He's saying you cannot serve two masters. You cannot worship two gods. You cannot love both God and money. So the question is, where does your mind go when I ask the following question? What do you love most supremely in this world? What do you love most supremely in this world? When I talk about your spouse or your children or your favorite sport or your reputation or your job or your life goals or your retirement or your health or your comfort or your entertainment, At what point in there does your heart begin to jump? See, what causes your heart to leap just at the mention of its name? Is it the name of Jesus? Is it the name of the Father? Or is it something else? Your love for the Lord is not what it should be if it is not the name of Jesus that makes your heart leap. If it's the name of one of your children or the name of your spouse, you love the world and the things of the world. We struggle with this, don't we? Anybody else in here? I struggle with the fact that I often find that I love my wife and my children and even my comforts more than Jesus. It shows up in all sorts of little ways. I know this because I often negotiate with God for outcomes I want. Rather than joyfully resting in whatever God's will is because I desire his glory above all else, I negotiate with him. Well, I'll follow you, but I need this and this and this and this from you. Go take my name to a people group who's never heard. My first thought, gosh, what's that going to do for my children? What's that going to do for my comforts? What are my kids going to lose out on? What am my wife going to lose What are we going to lose out on? Go tell my name to your neighbor at work. What, what will they think of me? What will happen to my reputation? Love your wife. No matter how costly it is to you right now. 
man, what are people going to think of me if I keep letting her get away with this? So John commands us, do not love the world or the things in the world. What John is doing is commanding us to have a new affection. He's giving you a command. Replace what your heart currently clings to and holds to with a new affection. He wants us to replace our affection on God and not on this life. And John tells us why. He actually gives us three arguments for it with what I'd say a new affection commended. If the first point is a new affection commanded, the second one is a new affection commended. In other words, here are the three arguments he gives us as to why we should not love the world or the things of the world. Look at verse um, 15 of 1 John 2. Again, the second part. If anyone, here's the conditional clause, if anyone loves the world, here's the, here's the second part of it, you ready? The love of the Father is not in him. Here's the first reason that he commends to you the, to love God and not the world is because love for the world kills love for the Father. Love for the world kills love for the Father. Now the question is, and scholars argue about this, and there's a use of a particular um, case of the noun here that I don't want to get into, but scholars argue, is love for the Father, uh, or love of the Father, is that my love for the Father is killed, or is that the Father's love for me is not experienced by me? And, And I guess I'm not sure it matters I'm not, I'm not sure it matters because think of adultery. Let's take the example of adultery. When you cultivate affections for another, when you cultivate affections for another, you lose your appetite for your spouse. You lose both your enjoyment of your spouse's love for you and you lose your love for your spouse. This is true with the cultivation of love of this world. The more I cultivate love for this world and the things of this world, the more I struggle to know the love of the Father for me and the more I struggle with loving the Father. The more I cultivate my love for my wife and children as ultimate, the more I lose a sense of my enjoyment of God's love for me and of my love for him. I cultivate a love for this world that what happens is it gets a grip on my heart to the degree that I cannot, I cannot even think about life apart from this world. You ever lay there awake at night wondering? What is life like apart from this world? What if I lost one of my kids? I'm going to lose my spouse, likely. I'm going to lose my career eventually, What's life like for me then? If I cultivated such a love for those things that I cannot even imagine living apart from them? See, I can't even imagine a joy in the Lord that, that is supreme over those things. See, when this happens to my heart, Longing to be with the Lord is not my greatest yearning. In fact, what is, is never losing 
what I have now. That becomes my greatest yearning. I will fight with everything in me to keep what I have now. So what is it for you? What have you set your affection on that has the tightest grip on your heart? What resident do you need the love of God to come into your heart and kick out? There's a second reason he commends a new affection. Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. In other words, this idea is the, the carnal desires of the body, the, the lusts of the eyes, the pride in possessions, uh, or really pride in life or boasting in this life and what this life offers what the translation I think is better as, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. This is um, echoing, if you will, what we hear in the garden, isn't it? When Satan comes to Eve and says, look at the fruit, doesn't it look delightful to the eyes? Doesn't it look like it will taste good? Do you know that God is trying to keep you from being like him? See, the the carnal desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride or boasts of life. There's nothing new under the sun. It's the same sin from the fall till now. And if you love the world and the things in the world, your love for the world and the things in the world will conform you to the lifestyle of the world. If you love this world, you will fall prey to and be conformed to the pattern of this world. You will fall into its cravings and lusts and boastings. Listen, if you're arranging the furniture in your heart and mind for a worldly resident, then the worldly resident will stick around and press you into his service. You cannot keep the command, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, Romans 12, 2. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind if you don't first expel love for the world and the things of the world. There's a third reason he commends a new affection, and that's that this world is passing away. Look at verse 17. So if the first one is that you're going to kill love for the Father, and the second one is that you're going to conform to the patterns of worldliness, the third one is that you're going to, the world is passing away. Verse 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Why would you want what is coming to nothing? Why set your supreme affection on something that's coming to nothing? In other words, what John is saying is you ought to set your love on God and not on the world or the things of the world because the things of the world will come to nothing and God will not. God will remain forever. Listen, your children will die. Your spouse will die. Your career will end. At some point, your reputation will be mud. Your worldly entertainments will come to an end. You will die. It will all come to an end. And even if you think you're going to make your mark in the history books, even that will come to an end when God returns. This whole world will come to an end. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Why? Because the Lord remains forever. You can be with him forever. So why cling to the things of this world? 
we're going to bring some children up here and dedicate them at the end of the service. I pray to God that those parents, and I know you're hearing me right now, repent of putting their children as supreme in their hearts if they are. And they understand that by standing up here, they're saying to all of you, God is supreme in our hearts, not our kids. I hope that's true for their family members here supporting them. We're here not because you and our grandchildren are supreme in our hearts, but because God is supreme in our hearts. The whole world will come to an end. But the Lord remains forever. Now all this can sound pretty burdensome, can't it? Let's be honest. I mean, it can sound burdensome, it can sound condemning. I mean, if, if we're not offered a new affection from outside of us, something more alluring that, than what the world offers, something which captures our hearts and has, if you will, an expulsive or expelling power over all other objects of desires, if we're not offered that, this all sounds condemning, this all sounds, if you will, burdensome, it sounds impossible, and that's because it is. It's an impossible command to keep. For the natural man cannot and will not keep the command to love not the world. There is nothing more impossible for his heart not to do. Listen, commanding him to not love the world is giving an impossible command for what has he left if he loves not the world or the things of the world. If you're a natural man, what's left? Don't love the world or the things of the world. So what do I love? Thomas Chalmers, a Puritan thinker who I have thoroughly ripped off in my understanding of this text, who wrote a, uh, I just want to give credit where credit's due. Thomas Chalmers wrote a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Expulsive, E-X-P-U-L-I-S-I-V-E. I tell you that so you can look it up. Thomas Chalmers, C-H-A-L-M-E-R-S. Go look it up. It's online as a PDF. Read it. And then read it again. And then maybe read it again. In his sermon, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, he said this, Nothing can exceed the magnitude of the required change in a man's character when bidden as he is in the New Testament to love not the world. No, nor any things that are in the world. For this so comprehends all that is dear to him in existence as to be equivalent to a command to self-annihilation. To command a a man to love not the world, nor the things in the world, is a command to him that his old man die and he be left with nothing. That's why a new affection becomes so important. It's a command to be crucified with Christ. It's a command to take up your cross and follow him. It's a command to living a cruciform life as he lived where I die and all that remains is him. So I want to look at the third point we learned from John, which is that God gives us a new affection. God gives us a new affection. In other words, he commands a new affection to us. He commends us to that new affection. And then here's the linchpin and the most, maybe most important part of it. He gives us the new affection. It is not something that comes from within you. Look at verses 12 through 14. 
And I want you to see the poetry of this a bit, though I'm not going to take a long time to explain that. I am writing to you, little children, notice that first phrase, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, if you look down a few phrases at the end of verse 13, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Now, notice in, at the beginning of verse 13, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know who, him who is from the beginning. Now, look at the beginning of verse 14. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Now, look at the middle of verse 13. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Look at the end of, or the middle to end of verse 14. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. Here's, here's what's going on here poetically. What John is doing is laying out for us not an orderly account in the way that you might think. In other words, children, fathers, young men is, not, is a strange order, isn't it? Well, if I'm going to start with young children, then I'm going to move to young men and then fathers. Or I'm going to start with fathers, move to young men and then children. But to start off with little children and then go fathers and then go young men, it's like, what's going on? Is John losing his mind? No. What John is doing is he's addressing the whole church with the phrase children. Look up at verse um, 1 of chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. Children, it is the last hour. Look at verse 28 of chapter 2. And now, little children, abide in him. Look at chapter 3 and verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Are, you. are you getting the point? So when he addresses the children, little children, he's addressing the whole church. And then he breaks them really into two, if you will, stages of maturity in Christ. Fathers... And young men. So what does he say to the church in general? Here's he gives us a new affection. This is the gospel being laid out prior to the command, actually, in this case. I'm writing to you, little children, why? Because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. You hear that, church? I'm about to give you a command that you have not kept and you cannot keep. So I want you to know that your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Not for your sake, but for his sake. Your sins are forgiven. How does that happen? Jesus comes and lives the perfect life that you failed to, keeping God's commandments in every respect, loving not the world nor the things in the world. In other words, his loves were rightly ordered for God supremely and then for others. And Jesus went to the cross and paid the penalty for your love of the world and the things in the world. And Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, to give you new life. So that your sins would be forgiven for his namesake. Now look at the end of verse 13. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. In other words, not only are you forgiven for your sins, but you've been now reconciled to God. At once you were at enmity with God, but now you know him. You're now in relationship with him. Reconciliation has occurred. You know him as father. You've been adopted into his family. You are sons and daughters. That isn't because of anything you did. That was a legal declaration made because of the work of Jesus for his sake. You need to know that. When you hear the command, do not love the world nor the things of the world, 
for anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You think to yourself, how could I possibly keep that command? There's no way I can keep that command. And John says to you, pay attention, little children. Your sins have been forgiven for his namesake. You've been reconciled to the Father because of him. You are now in relationship with him. That gospel message has come down and changed you and redeemed you. And he goes on from there, justified you, not just forgiven you and declared you righteous, but he moves on. Look at what he says to the young men, middle of verse 13. I am writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. Look at the end of verse 14. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you've overcome the evil one. This word of God abides in you almost picks up with the young men from Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By meditating on your word day and night. You young men have not only been forgiven for your sins and declared righteous and adopted as children and reconciled to the Father and now you know him, but you young men have been strengthened by the work of the Holy Spirit by keeping to God's word to overcome sin. In other words, not only have you been justified, but you are experiencing sanctification, growth and holiness. You are knowing that the power of sin is broken, that you are no longer a hostage to Satan and sin and death, but you've been freed to now walk in holiness and you desire to keep God's word, that the Spirit has changed your heart and taken out your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh and caused you to want to walk in his commandments. You know that. Young men. You see, when we all come to Christ, we experience this. The young man phase happens right at the beginning, doesn't it? And you know how it happens? I don't know what happened to me, but I believed in Jesus, and now I know I'm forgiven, and I'm a different person. I don't want to do the things I used to do. You guys remember that experience? Young men, you're forgiven for his namesake. You know the Father. You've overcome the evil one. You know the change of life that's happened. Fathers, this growth in holiness continues. Verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. That's an interesting phrase. Him who is from the beginning is clearly a reference to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Fathers, you know him who is from the beginning. And here's what he's getting at. He repeats that twice. And you might know this experience if you grow in maturity in Christ. You will definitely know this experience if you ever sit with an older saint who's grown in Christ over the years, you'll know it because you're talking about justification and sanctification. I'm so glad I've been forgiven. I'm so glad I've been empowered to overcome the evil one in this way and, and I'm in the word and I'm changed and I'm different. I'm growing. And the older person is going, mm-hmm, and they're basically almost patting you on the head. That's very sweet. I know him. It's, it's not just that justification and sanctification are good. It's that I've come to the place where I recognize those aren't the end. They're the means to the end. And the end is knowing him. I know Jesus. That's why Paul can say, I consider all things rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. 
See, I know him. That's what happens as you grow in maturity is you go beyond I'm forgiven and I'm changed to now that stuff happened so that I can know him. I can be in relationship with him. I can delight in him in a way that I didn't even know at the beginning so that I love not the world nor the things of the world, but he is the object of my supreme affection. I know him. That's maturity in Christ. Delighting not ultimately in justification and sanctification, those other things are glorious, but delighting in the fact that because of those things, I know him. It's as if you come to know the gospel, the forgiveness that you have in Christ, the freedom you have in him, the value of knowing him, it's there that the world love, if you will, gets expelled from your heart. The love of God and the gospel coming into your heart is the new affection that has the expulsive power to remove all other objects of affection. And you can't put that love there. Only God can, by his spirit, through the proclamation of his word. It's as you grow in this, though, once it's there, you can grow in it, that you can say with Paul that I consider everything rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. So if you're a believer struggling with this, let me, let me ask you this. So if you're an unbeliever, you're sitting there going, I could give a rip about anything you're saying. I'm so fully in love with the world and the things of the world, you sound like a complete raving lunatic. Okay, I accept that. The world considers the gospel foolishness. If God does not work in your heart, to expel the love of the world and the things of the world and give you a love for Jesus, uh, there's, there's nothing I can say to change that. I can preach the word to you and pray for you. But if you want it changed in your heart, then you get on your face and ask God to change it. And he'll answer that prayer. He will. But if you're a believer and you're struggling with this, some of you are, right? All of you probably are. How do you cultivate love for the Lord? How do you cultivate this new affection he's given you that has the expulsive power over love for the world? I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you six things and they're gonna come fast. It's not like six-point sermon coming. It's just quick things, okay? One, preach the gospel to yourself daily. So you wanna cultivate love for the Lord? Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Remind yourself of who you are and what you deserve in and of yourself. Tell yourself what Jesus did for you in his life and death and resurrection. Recognize that it's a gift to be a new creature, a new creature in Christ and that apart from the work of his spirit, you would have nothing but world love. Reflect on his grace for you. Every day do that. Preach the gospel to yourself. Second, sit under the preaching of the word in the corporate body regularly. Sit under the preaching of the word in the corporate body regularly. You need to be in a body where the word is preached in such a manner that you feed on the rich delight of knowing Christ. It's not okay to be under the regular teaching of a local church that does not point you to relentlessly to Jesus or to his word. It's not okay. I do not understand, I, see what I says. I understand that it's not always easy to find a good local church but it's your responsibility to go looking for one. If you move from Bakersfield, let me give you some advice. Look for a good church before choosing where you'll live. 
College students, you have more than one option for college? I only had one, so that's where I went. But if you have more than one option, if you have more than one option, why don't you look for a good church first? Choose the college based on the place where you can find a good church. Because college will eat your lunch if you don't have somebody helping you. Third, cultivate deep relationships with other believers who will gather with you and stir you up to love and good deeds. Do not forsake the gathering yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing, but, but stir one another up to love and good deeds. You have to cultivate those relationships. You need one another to grow in Christ. You can't wait for this to come to you. You have to go pursuing it. I have, I have people tell me, I try, but people never reciprocate. Well, I, it's the same thing happens to me. 90 plus percent of my relationships are me pursuing with nobody reciprocating. They, they'll come and hang out, but they will never call me, text me, email me, and ask me to do something. Now, maybe that's a clue they're sending me. I don't know. But, <laughs> but the fact is, most of your relationships will be you pursuing. If you have any good relationships, pay attention. That's probably the case. Most of them will be that way. I'm not commanded, however, to demand that others love me well. I'm commanded to love them well. And most of us, unfortunately, run from relationship to relationship, church to church, demanding for other people to love me well, rather than going somewhere and loving others well. That's why it's so utterly important to have long-term relationships with people. I, I was watching Russell Horner lead our youth ministry yesterday on the Knott's Berry Farm trip. And as I was watching, I was reflecting on the fact that I've known him since he was in my youth group. He's over 30 and has kids, and that, that dates me, right? But I, I've known him since he's in my youth group, and now not only was he in my youth group, but now he's my kid's youth pastor. And, and Russell and I, I can tell you this, we're not needy for each other's constant attention, Because of our ministry and life responsibilities, we actually get to spend time together more than I know he'd like. <laughs> but, but, I'm sorry, I had to do it. But I know, here's what I know, that Russell knows me and I know him, and when my heart starts to stray, just his presence in my life is a reminder of where my heart should be. That's true with all the men I walk through life with. It's true with my wife. Fourth, be regularly in the word. Be regular in the word, both on your own and with others. You cannot take in all the messages of love for the world that are constantly confronting you and not hear from God and think you're going to love him more. Listen, if you only listen to the beckoning of an adulterous woman every day and never the voice of your own wife, where do you think your heart would go? Well, if you only listen to the voice of the world and the flesh and the devil and never the voice of the Lord which is in his word, where do you think your heart will go? Fifth, be sober about eschatology daily. What? Did I just lose my mind? Be sober about your doctrine of the end daily. Here's what I don't mean. I don't mean try to figure out, you know, like play the game of pin the tail on the Antichrist and try to figure out who he is. And That's not what I mean. Okay, be sober about your eschatology daily. What I mean by that is 
Jesus is going to return. He's going to return. And he's either going to return first, or you're going to have your personal eschatological day of judgment first. I don't know what's coming first for you, but you better be sober about it daily. G.K. Beale has said that eschatology is the key to your sanctification. You need to remember that the world is passing away. You need to focus on the fact that Jesus is presently at the right hand of the Father, and he could come back at any time. And reflecting on that sobers you about what matters today. Jesus can return at any time. Let your love get aligned with that reality. Six, pray constantly. Pray constantly that God will give you a greater love for him. Here's the thing. Ultimately, we need God to do this work in our lives, not just the beginning of our faith, but throughout our lives, and so we need to be constantly in prayer for him to do it. This is a command that's impossible to keep in and of ourselves, but by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in us, we can keep it. Let's pray. Father, we ask, we ask that your spirit would be powerfully at work in our hearts and minds, that those who do not believe would see their need for Jesus and trust him. Those of us who do believe, Father, that your spirit would work to continue to expel worldly affections from our heart and cause us to love you supremely. We need you to powerfully work in us. We need you to give us the discipline to be in the word, to be regularly in relationship with others, to be regularly under the preaching of the word, to constantly reflect on the return of your son. We need you to be doing these things in us. We ask that you would. We trust that you will. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.